Welcome to Native America Calling, I'm Andy Murphy. Four tribes in Alaska, California, and Montana will see the first installment of funding from a federal program designed to strengthen food sovereignty and access by way of support for tribal animal processing facilities. Food chain issues highlighted by the pandemic and long-standing shortages caused by remote accessibility and climate change are some reasons tribal food advocates and policymakers have been asking for federal help to expand processing. We'll learn more about this side of tribal agriculture and economy after National Native News. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. The Reno Sparks Indian Colony says it will end its legal fight against a lithium mine on sacred land after a Nevada court dismissed the tribe's lawsuit. The Thacker Pass lithium mine would be located at the site of a village that was massacred. Christina Onested reports. We didn't lose the lawsuit because we were wrong. We lost the lawsuit because the law favors mining. Reno Sparks Indian Colony Chair Arlen Melendez says to continue a legal fight against the Thacker Pass lithium mine would be costly and take too long. By the time you would get through to appeal, they would have already uh, desecrated all of the sacred sites. But the Washoe, Paiute, and Shoshone tribes that make up the colony aren't giving up the fight. Melendez says the next phase will be a public awareness campaign about the $2 billion project, the largest open-pit lithium mine in North America, to produce electric vehicle batteries in the push to transition off fossil fuels and combat climate change. Will Falk is a tribe's lawyer. This project is absolutely a fossil fuel-based project. They're going to burn 12,000 gallons of diesel and gasoline on site every single day to operate the Thacker Pass lithium mine. There's going to be over 152,000 tons of carbon dioxide equivalent emissions every single year. That's the size of a small city. The lithium will go to General Motors, which invested $650 million in the parent company, Lithium Americas, earlier this year. GM is maker of the electric Hummer a large SUV that's predicted to emit more emissions than a gas-powered sedan, according to the American Council for an Energy-Efficient Economy, a nonprofit climate research center. There are more than 21,000 other lithium mining claims in the state of Nevada, according to the Nevada Division of Minerals. I'm Christina Onestead, reporting for National Native News. In Utah, a group of educators at Brigham Young University is working with the eight sovereign nations in the state to create lessons that reflect what tribes want taught about them. KUER's Martha Harris went to a classroom to see one of those lessons in action. Ready? Listen and then... Repeat. Brenda Bial is visiting a third grade class at Spanish Oaks Elementary in Spanish Fork. She's teaching the students how to say words in Navajo. It's her native language. Bial is Diné, a member of the Navajo Nation. The students are learning the song Shinasha. What makes this lesson unique is it has the Navajo Nation's stamp of approval. It's a part of BYU's Native American Curriculum Initiative. The project started because of what Bial heard from teachers. Educators wanted help knowing what's appropriate to teach about Indigenous people. So Bial and her colleagues started creating lesson plans. It was important that we actually go to the sovereign nations and we ask them, 
What would you like the children of Utah to know about your ways? Beall says every single tribe wanted kids to know that they are still here. They're not historical figures. But then after that, every one of them has a different topic or content that they want children to know. Beall says many lessons treat Indigenous people as having one singular viewpoint. Within Utah, there are eight sovereign nations with eight different ways of viewing things, um, different cultural ways, different arts. In these lessons, students are not just learning about the sovereign nations and their history. They're learning from them and through their perspectives. In Salt Lake City, I'm Martha Harris. And I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support by Drummond Woodsum, a full-service law firm whose nationally recognized tribal nations practice provides services to tribal nations and their enterprises and to companies that do business with tribes across the country. More at dwmlaw.com. When you celebrate responsibly, you ensure holidays filled with joy, love, and cherished moments. And you keep yourself and loved ones safe while setting a positive example. Cheers to safe celebrations. Support by Diageo and the Multicultural Consortium for Responsible Drinking. More at drinkiq.com. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. This is Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy, sitting in for Sean Spruce. At the White House Tribal Nations Summit last week, the Biden administration announced the first round of funding for four tribal meat processing operations from the Indigenous Animals Harvesting and Meat Processing Grant Program. More than $4 million is going to what federal officials say is a commitment to strengthening food sovereignty. And that includes a mobile meat processing unit and staffing in Northern California, an expansion of game meat processing on the Fort Peck Indian Reservation, a substantial buildup of a reindeer meat processing operation on Alaska's St. Paul Island, and a meat and fish facility for the Lutic tribe of Old Harbor, also in Alaska. Meat processing is an important part of tribal food sovereignty and economy. In Alaska, it's also a way to offset high food prices. In this hour, we'll hear more about new federal funding and what it might do for tribes now and in the future. You can join us too. Does your tribe operate a meat processing facility? How about a mobile one? Give us a call at 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us from Anchorage, Alaska is Cynthia Burns. She is the project manager and an enrolled member at Aluktik Tribe of Old Harbor. Welcome to Native America Calling, Cynthia. Hi, Chmai. Thank you for having me. 
So the Aleutic tribe of Old Harbor is receiving $1 million from the USDA to update a meat processing facility. Uh, what will this money do, and, and what is the meat processing uh, facility to be used for? Yes, so we had an opportunity. Um, our late uh, Chief Al Crady had passed away, uh, and he owned a processing plant, Old Harbor Finest, there in Old Harbor. And it's been, um, you know, sitting there idle, not being used. And so we saw an opportunity with this program. Um, what this project is proposing or will implement is the purchase and upgrades of that processing plant. And then over a period of two years, we'll hire um, a manager and two processors uh, to process and distribute uh, various meat to our um, tribal members. Okay. And what are some of these uh, meats? Like, uh, can you name uh, some of the animals that will uh, eventually go through this uh, processing plant? Yes. Well, we listed everything in... <laughs> that surrounds our community, mm -hmm. um, but those details will, will be worked out as we um, work through this project. But we do own the Cyclitic Bison Herd, which is um, on an island, Cyclitic Island, across from our village. We have about 190 head of bison that are roaming freely on, on our island, are thriving over there. So we're very excited about that. Um, so definitely uh, bison meat. Uh, locally, we have uh, Sitka black-tailed deer, goats. Um, of course, we have all of our uh, salmon and rockfish uh, that are available. And our community members also um, enjoy eating sea lion and seals. So those are um, a few of uh, the products that we intend to process and distribute. Okay. All right. So <clears throat> why is uh, meat processing important in uh, Old Harbor? Y you just mentioned that, um, uh, you know, folks are already um, hunting and processing these animals on their own. Why, uh, you know, have to go through a facility? Well, we, our community really struggles uh, economy. We're about a, a village of 220 people uh, with a really low economic base. And so, especially during uh, COVID, all of our community entities, um, our tribe, our city, our village corporation, and our local nonprofit really saw the impacts that it was having on our community with um, the, the lack of access to food and goods. Um, when the when the um, supply system was cut off to Kodiak and um, we weren't able to order groceries and get them sent down. And even at that, you're paying 86 cents a pound. So we really have been focusing on food security. We established our bison herd. We established the Sycolytic Sunrise Farm, which is um, a farm with three hoop houses. We've gotten into hydroponics. Uh, we established a, um, an apple orchard. Uh, this upcoming year, we're, we're implementing a huge potato patch. So we really wanted to figure out how we want to provide our own food. It's not only tastes better, it's much healthier. The food that we get from Kodiak, like the fresh goods, are, you know, not very good quality. They're coming from thousands of miles away. And so uh, it's been really important to us to do that. And um, for those who can afford to go subsistence hunting and, and hunt for, you know, seals and 
um, uh, the bison and the the deer. It's expensive. You're paying um, over seven fifty per gallon for gasoline to go out on your boat, and not everybody can afford that. We have a lot of elders. Um, our population is getting elderly, and so being able to um, harvest these local uh, and some of them are indigenous. I will say some of them aren't. Uh, deer, Sitka deer, were uh, brought to Kodiak Island, as well as goats. But they're food that our, our community has become accustomed to eating. And so they're just so much healthier than going and buying all this processed food that has caused so much disease in our community. Um, we have young community members dying of diabetes and heart issues and all of these health problems, whereas we were when we were eating off the land on these natural foods, we were healthy. We were thriving. We didn't have all of this disease um, that we see now in our community. Right. And uh, before, um, or, or right now, how are uh, bison processed from the herd you mentioned? Yeah, so they're, they're individually processed. Um, they are, uh, we have a tier two hunt where community members um, put in their name for a drawing and it's two households that go out and they harvest together and then they're processing um, in their homes or in their sheds or wherever they can um, process their meat. Okay. And uh, how would uh, having a processing plant, um, you know, an actual facility, how would that contribute to the economy? Well, it's going to provide um, three positions over a period of two years, and then we'll be strategizing on how to make it self-sustainable facility, possibly, um, you know, having it um, certified so we can sell bison meat. You know, we're, we're going to be doing some studies and um, running some numbers on that. But three jobs in a community of 200 people is huge for us um, and makes a, a huge impact on, on families to be able to uh, provide a income. And, you know, once it's in the community, usually it stays in the community. They're shopping at the local stores. They're using it for fuel. Um, and it just um, just really helps um, our community and our local families there in the village. Okay. And this uh, funding, this $1 million from the Animal Harvesting and uh, Meat Processing Grant Program, uh, this is updating a uh, facility that's already there. Can you uh, tell me about this older facility and, and what would uh, updates look like? Yeah, so th it has been sitting for for quite a few years. So um, there, we have plumbing issues, we have electrical issues. Um, it's a 40 by uh, 60 um, facility. It's got some equipment in there, but we're going to have to do some um, upgrades on the equipment. Um, and doing any kind of construction out in a rural community First of all, it's very difficult to even find a contractor that will work with you or provide a bid to come out to the community. And then, um, second of all, it's really expensive. Um, they have to fly out. Usually, contractors are coming from Anchorage, um, and having you know barge service is extremely expensive to get um, supplies and items out to the community. Um, so we'll be doing all those upgrades, procuring estimates for all of that work. 
um, and then additionally getting some supplies and additional uh, equipment. And then the remainder will be utilized for um, the uh, employees that will work under that program. Okay. All right. And where, where exactly in um, Alaska are you guys situated? We're on Kodiak Island, and we're on the southeast end of Kodiak Island. Okay. And uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, this meat just tastes better. Um, could you maybe expand on that, uh, describe that for us? Well, I think many of us growing up in the village, I was born and raised in Old Harbor, we, we really didn't have the option to or couldn't afford to buy, um, you know, cow meat or pork or any of that. We grew up eating all deer meat and seal and sea lion and bear um, so, and fish. And that was our protein that we ate. Um, a lot of people, when they move away, uh, you do have a little more access to those other meats, and but you've grown accustomed to eating your traditional foods from your community. And... Um, don't even they, they don't just taste better, but they're just better for you. They don't have all these preservatives in them and the hormones and you know all the stuff that is causing health issues for us. Right. We are talking about tribal meat processing today. Uh, we have Cynthia Burns with us from the Luktik tribe of Old Harbor. They are one of four tribes who got a first round of funding from the Indigenous Animal and Meat Harvesting uh, Processing uh, Grant Program from the USDA. We'll be back after this, but you can join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. Lori Wiaki's career in community organizing on Native issues spans decades. Central to her work is voting rights for Native Americans in New Mexico and nationally. Lori Wiaki joins us as this month's Native in the Spotlight on the next episode of Native America Calling. Everyone looks forward to celebrating the holidays. Remember to celebrate responsibly. Holidays are filled with laughter, joy, and creating memories, which can include a drink or two. Remember, moderation is vital. Here's a tip to help. Plan ahead and designate a driver or arrange a ride-sharing service. By celebrating responsibly, you ensure holidays filled with joy, love, and cherished moments, and you keep yourself and your loved ones safe. Cheers to safe celebrations. Support by Diageo and the Multicultural Consortium for Responsible Drinking. More at drinkiq.com. You are listening to Native America Calling. I'm Andy Murphy. We're talking about tribal meat processing today. How important is this sector of food sovereignty or tribal economy? Does your tribe operate a meat processing plant? Tell us about it. Join our conversation by calling 1-800-996-2848. That's also 1-800-99-NATIVE. Uh, Cynthia Burns is with us today from Anchorage, Alaska. She is the manager at uh, project manager at Elutic Tribe of Old Harbor. Uh, Cynthia, how does climate change uh, affect food, uh, the food system there? in your area? It's, it's changing the ocean environment and really impacting um, 
subsistence and a lot of our community members are commercial fishermen. Um, back in, I remember back in 2019, the ocean was 60 degrees. There were hundreds of birds around our, our village just dead because they didn't have food source. There was algae blooms. There were dead whales. Like, it was very disturbing. Um, and it's not only, you know, these animals around what we're seeing, but the documentation on um, how the plankton populations are decimating um, and impacting the entire food web. Um, the salmon and cod fisheries have collapsed. The cod biomass is down 79% from 2013 to 2017. I mean, this is all having effects on our community members and, and really it's it's changing and we know we have to adapt but at the same time it's very um, disturbing and scary. And is this uh, meat processing facility, is this part of um, a plan to adapt? Yes, absolutely. That along with our, um, you know, our farming how are we going to be more self-sustainable? How can we take care of ourselves and not rely on food sources from outside? We can do it. I know we can. It's just, you know, we're taking small steps towards getting to be completely self-sustainable. All right. Let's hear now from Heather Don Thompson. She is the director of the Office of Tribal Relations for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. She is Cheyenne River Sioux, and I talked with her earlier today about why the department is branching out to focus on indigenous meat processing. So this is the first time ever that we have leaned into what are called non-amenable species. These are species that are not regulated in the same way or inspected, excuse me, in the same way by the federal government. These are indigenous animals. These were tribal governmental grants. And the tribes have been saying to USDA for a very long time, we want support to process, to harvest and process indigenous animals. And that's exactly what this grant does. There's up to $50 million coming out the door. The first four uh, were announced last week at the White House Tribal Nation Summit. The others will be coming out on a rolling basis. And the tribes themselves really defined what that meant for them. And so you can see that diversity in animals and type of processing in the first four already. So we've seen reindeer, we've seen fish, we've seen buffalo, the animals that are important to those specific tribes. And you see a combination of using both uh, modern and indigenous meat processing in those grants as well. When should tribes start investing in a meat processing facility? And when should they maybe look for uh, financial support from, say, this grant program? So this specific grant program has closed, but USDA has lots of other meat processing opportunities, and we really encourage tribes to look at them. We don't think you can start soon enough. A lot of tribes saw during COVID, the disruption in their supply chain and markets for their local producers and for accessing protein for their communities. And having even a small processing opportunity locally is really provides value for your local producers and provides value for your local community to make sure that you have sovereignty access to the foods that you need for your community and tribe. Since you've been in this position almost three years, how have you seen tribal sovereignty uh, bolstered by the ability for tribes to have control over this process of the food chain? 
I have to admit, when I took this position, I didn't realize how committed this White House was. The direction comes directly from the White House to the department to support tribal positions. And you can see that in the work that USDA and the other departments are doing. Tribal sovereignty is being supported across the board in the food chain. We are listening to tribes, what types of animals that they want to raise and what types of crops that they want to grow. You see videos coming out about foraging that you would never see previously historically. You see monies going towards the processing of reindeer and buffalo. You see uh, commitments being made to supporting the restoration of tribal buffalo herds that the federal government historically had participated in destroying. And so across the board in every step of the food growing, processing, marketing process, USDA is trying to do a better job incorporating indigenous values and tribal perspectives. That was Heather Don Thompson from the USDA. Joining us now is Dr. Lauren Devine. She is the director of the Ecosystem Conservation Office for the Lutic community of St. Paul Island. Welcome to Native America Calling, Lauren. Thank you so much for having me. So the uh, LEU community is also getting a grant. Uh, tell us about it. What is the money going to go toward? This is a very exciting opportunity for us, similar to uh, what Cynthia described as um, a processing facility on St. Paul Island in the middle of the Bering Sea where we can locally process uh, animal products. And we are focusing on reindeer. We have a reindeer herd uh, that now is grown almost to a thousand animals uh, in this climate change uh, <laughs> warming climate that we're in but we also uh, have subsistence uh, users that have grown up eating northern fur seals a stellar sea lion uh, Pacific halibut crab species a variety of um, different marine resources uh, that are available Okay. Uh, expand more than more on that. Uh, the St. Paul Island is 300 miles from the Alaska mainland. What is the main source of uh, food there, and, and where does it come from? Subsistence resources are so important. We're a community of about 400 Onungan or Aleut uh, tribal members, and the ability to have kind of a mixed economy where we do have a locally run, our tribal government um, owns and operates our Aleut community store that brings in groceries um, from, uh, from exports. But also we have uh, lots of seabirds. We have a ton of marine resources. So we have a, a robust um, halibut fishery and our, our subsistence fishermen are both commercial and, and subsistence fishers. We uh, have hunting for marine mammals and for reindeer, and reindeer is such an important protein um, ever since they've been introduced in the early 1900s. Okay. Uh, the uh, press release for this um, 
uh, indigenous animals harvesting and processing uh, grants programs from the uh, Tribal Nation Summit, it uh, mentions that uh, this grant, uh, which is um, you know $668,000, will help tribal members remember, relearn, and practice traditional herding techniques that are important to the cultural heritage of the island. what, what does that look like? How, how does that take place when, um, you know, there's this uh, meat processing plant there? Absolutely. So this is such a unique opportunity for us to be able to diversify our local economy through being able to have a field to market um, product line for reindeer that would be offered in our local grocery store. And then also we have a uh, a part of this grant that is going to provide the reindeer meat into our local food bank. And that really gets at increasing access to uh, local foods and helps increase our food security for every tribal member on island um, in, in that you know pursuit of, of food sovereignty. But this is also linked because we are going to develop a field to market technique. We are going to be taking people into the field. We're going to be creating positions and using um, employment to relearn uh, ancient herding techniques. This reindeer herd is from Chukotka. It's the part of the Siberian um, herd that has been domesticated over tens of thousands of years. And when the Bering Land Bridge um, connected Alaska to Siberia, um, you know, uh, uh, Onangan are from the transition and, and migration of, of those peoples into the Aleutian chain. St. Paul's a unique story because it was traditionally a, a temporary hunting ground, a temporary harvesting ground for the Aleutian peoples, and it was um, settled permanently through um, forced relocation and enslavement of Unanga from the Aleutian chain onto uh, the island of St. Paul for harvesting northern fur seals for their pelts and for export. And so there is such a um, traumatic history, and there have been traditions that have been lost. The herding techniques have been lost, um, and and we want to remember those for tribal members and provide opportunities to get people back into the field, back up close with reindeer. We also are looking at ways to diversify um, and use the pelts for crafting, the other parts of the animal. We know that indigenous values state, um, you know, non-wasteful take and using every part of the animal. And so we have really planned to craft and make use of all of the different parts of the reindeer that would be harvested uh, as we develop this program. So there's really exciting kind of more holistic Uh, ways that we can um, add to our our tribal member, uh, strengthening those cultural ties, providing food, and and increasing food security on island, and diversifying our economy all at the same time. Got it. I want to go back to uh, Cynthia Burns. Uh, Cynthia, uh, same question for you. How do you see a meat processing plant contributing to uh, the revitalization of uh, traditional hunting and uh, processing in that area? Well, it, it will be based off of that. Our hunting and gathering practices and our dedication to the natural resource, resources around us are inherent to our spiritual practices and beliefs. We, uh, just like at St. Paul, want to utilize 
every part of that animal. We're looking at um, sending some folks down to learn how to traditionally um, um, process the hides so we can utilize those for our arts and crafts. Um, we have a plan for all of the um, um, all of the skulls and how we're going to clean those by putting them in crab pots and putting them down for the ocean to naturally clean them. So we're, we'll be working through all those details with our team, but we definitely, um, you know, are in the, in the same mindset. We want to utilize every part of the animals that we're using um, for, for this program. Uh, Lauren, uh, this grant specifically mentions the Aleut Community Store, which is tribally run. How is this store different than other stores in Alaska or in the lower 48? This is, um, it represents a transition from outside and external management of the grocery supply chain uh, and kind of a recapturing of that by our tribal government. So our tribal president, our tribal council, our elder um, council, all of these individuals are very much in the day-to-day management and decision-making of everything uh, that comes into the store and, and managing the supply. And that just really takes out the kind of middleman and external influences on the community store. And what's exciting about that is because we uh, own and operate this store, we've been able to take back a certified um, Department of Environmental Conservation, which is the state of Alaska certification for being able to process and sell um, animal meat out of the uh, location is that we can revamp and uh, remodel this kitchen that historically brought in sides of beef and cut sides of beef like a delicatessen for fresh meats, but also for frozen meats, and offered it in the grocery store. Uh, we are going to re-envision that and bring back in the local butchering directly to the store, um, where it can go directly to consumers in the freshest way, uh, to our tribal members, fresh and frozen, in a variety of products that are um, staying within the local supply chain. And so it really keeping dollars um, on the island and growing our local economy. And we wouldn't be able to do that. We haven't been able to do that with the external management of the grocery store as it's been in uh, recent decades. Okay. Uh, you're mentioning uh, butchering. Um, how how would training uh, go about, and, and what kind of training would folks need if they are going to be working at this meat uh, processing facility? Because it's a it's a, a science all in itself. Absolutely, and this is something that involves a lot of collaboration across um, several of our tribal government departments and. Not only are we, uh, we have been experimenting and exploring with what a field uh, to market butchering process would look like. And so we have been taking tribal members into the field and working with partners that are experienced in field butchering to uh, look at what that type of process would look like and the manpower that would be needed, the resources that would be needed and capacity that we need. And that's why this grant is so exciting to spend the time that we need to refine that and really work out the process to streamline it. But then we also will be taking uh, the field butchered carcasses 
from that team in the field and bringing it to the grocery store where now you are training and bringing in grocery store staff and local residents that are operating uh, the sale of these products to teach them skills and how to process and create these value-added products like ground meat or stew meat, things that have uh, traditionally had to come in at a very high price uh, with frozen beef that is less nutritional. Um, and we're able to utilize uh, additional staff capacity to start to specialize and train, have these nutritionists come in. Um, so we have tribal members that are cooking demos and handing out samples of uh, the different products of meat so that people can try them. We are uh, encouraging those employees to start um, experimenting with cooking recipes and bring those into the grocery store and let our customers sample the meat. So it really is such a multifaceted project, and we are tapping into all of our uh, staff capacity across departments, but also bringing in new positions and specialized training for those individuals so that we can really create uh, the ecosystem of, of um, you know, every piece of this process, just kind of streamlining that uh, to the local economy. Got it. All right. Uh, we'll be back after this break. We're talking about tribal meat processing facilities. You can join us. Tell us about your tribal meat processing facility. We're at 1-800-996-2848. Support for journalism that raises the awareness of child well-being to citizens and to policymakers provided by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, building a brighter future for children, families, and communities. Information at aecf.org. Lakota-made indigenous first medicines and eco-friendly personal care products are small batch prepared in the Lakota traditions using sustainably harvested natural and organic ingredients, and all can be found at lakotamade.com who support this show. Thank you for listening to Native America Calling. I'm producer and host Andy Murphy. We're focusing on meat processing today. An increasing number of tribes are establishing their own animal meat processing op operations, and the federal government is getting behind them with some much-needed funding. If you're working in the area of food sovereignty, how does a local tribally-owned and operated meat facility, uh, meat processing facility fit? or change access to food. There's still time to join us by calling 1-800-996-2848. That is 1-800-99-NATIVE. Joining us from this year's Intertribal Agriculture Council Conference in Las Vegas, Nevada, is Harley Moore Wilson. She is the Director of Natural Resources and Food Sovereignty for the Osage Nation. She's Osage. Welcome to Native America Calling, Harley. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. You work for the Osage Nation. Uh, to start, what does uh, meat processing look like there? So the Osage Nation is located in uh, northeastern Oklahoma, and we are a very rural area. And so we started our meat processing facility at the end of 2020. And our processing facility was built um, and funded by the CARES dollars that came to Native American governmental entities after COVID. And, and really, we have a lot of the same issues that the tribal nations in Alaska were seeing. Our, tri our tribe had 
um, such limited and access to fresh foods and vegetables along with a low income. And so we were looking at how to address that a supply chain shortage. And COVID really just enhanced the food desert that we were already in. And so we had three grocery stores across uh, Osage County, which is the same as the Osage Reservation boundaries. And so we were looking at how to be able to get our beef and bison that we already owned that was in the pasture to the plate. And so our chief, Chief Danning Bear, um, decided to utilize those dollars to create a state and USDA inspected meat processing facility along with a state-of-the-art um, greenhouse and farm facility. Okay. Uh, so when we talk about uh, meat processing, uh, certification is really kind of the, the, the big name of the game here. Uh, can, can you expand on that? How important is certification in this process of taking uh, animals to the grocery store? So certification is really big in the, in the fact that we saw those supply chain shortages and our elder nutrition programs and our child care programs could not receive their shipments in um, during COVID. And so we wanted to be able to federally inspect our meat to be able to provide meat to those programs specifically. And then that way they could utilize the federal dollars to circulate within our tribal nation um, to kind of keep that money going and keep it internal. And so certification is very, very important in that aspect. Along with it, it becomes important on a state processing um, certification level and the fact that state views uh, bison harvesting um, as a livestock. And so you can inspect bison to be able to sell and you can sell that bison um, across state lines with that state inspection. Versus, um, like Ms. Heather Don Thompson stated, uh, bison in the federal processing, USDA processing certification level is a voluntary inspection. And so uh, they, the USDA views bison as a wild animal still, and, and you do a voluntary inspection under um, 9 CFR 352 versus the state views bison as a livestock and, and that becomes a much easier processing uh, route to go down to be able to get that bison meat into retail centers. All right, let's go to our caller right now in Pine Ridge, South Dakota, listening on KILI is Chinupa. Hey, Chinupa. Hey, thank you for having me on this topic. You know, the young lady that was talking about you know, the processing plants that would better serve native communities. The Oglala Sioux Tribe here on the Pine Ridge Indian Reservation, we had our own facility, okay? And it was um, purchased in a little town called Gordon, Nebraska, which has some history. And that's where they uh, killed the Raymond Yellow Thunder, which brought AIM in. But besides this issue to that, when we bought that um, that processing plant, it employed our people. I worked on the kill floor department. And so we processed not only cattle, but we also did wild game, whether it was elk, deer, and whatnot. And then the USDA came in, and they wanted to look for any type of small entity to sanction us, which eventually closed the facility down. So white people turned around and bought it back from us. 
But because of these, you know, USDA doing all these sanctions and whatnot, this is 2023, and we're coming into a new uh, new year. Let's pray in our hearts that in Lakota they say, if we can continue to serve our way as native people to protect our animals because they become endangered species, we can bring our language and our tradition and culture and a better health of our medicine back to our people when we go back to eating wild game. And this is a good show that you guys had today. I haven't been on for a day or so because I've been working with our elders and whatnot, you know, getting firewood and and, and hunting, by the way, mm-hmm. getting some uh, wild deer for them. So thank you guys for having that subject. And young lady that's that you were talking to just now, tell her to keep it up. We need more Native people to hire our own so they can get them off the street so they don't have to be beneficiaries to drugs and all that heinous necessity. And thank you for taking my call. Wopila from Pine Ridge. Ha-ho. All right. Thanks for that, Chinupa. So, Harley, you got to keep it up. <laughs> Chinupa says so. Um, Harley, how, how have your dealings been with the USDA? I mean, why is it important to go through the USDA for uh, uh, this process here? Can, can't we just go around it? You know, the USDA has been very helpful um, to our meat processing facility and we're, we were one of the first tribal nations to have a meat processing facility to be able to house both bison and beef and then some other domesticated animals. And I don't believe you should skirt around the USDA certifications and the fact that your other programs within tribal nations can utilize those federal dollars to bring revenue into your nation um, by buying your meat. Uh, within your facility because like our facility has a retail counter there. So we don't send our um, packaged meat out to the grocery stores. We just have our own. And then we also have a mobile market that goes into the smaller communities of our reservation to be able to uh, sell meat just direct to the consumer from our meat processing facility. Right. And how would that um, uh, factor into like the culinary side of all of this? I mean, the the end product, what we see on our plates, how do you see, um, you know, this, uh, uh, sh- this this strengthening of tribal meat processing facilities, strengthening the, the culinary side of everything and, and what we can see and taste? You know, it's really amazing to be able to see what our individual tribal members can do with a fresh product versus um, receiving a product from the grocery store that has probably been on the shelf for too long because of how rural we are, along with um, you don't know what goes into that meat. And so at our facility, we know that our retail counter sells our animals, our cattle and our bison, and we know exactly what goes into those animals. And that provides a sense of um, cultural security, knowing that uh, our consumers within our meat processing facility know that we are not putting any extra additive hormones or vaccines that are not necessary into our animals before slaughter. Okay. 
Um, and uh, Dr. Lauren Devine was talking about their local tribally owned uh, grocery store. Um, gro- tribal grocery stores, there's not very many of them out there. Um, h- how important is it for tribes to now start looking at their uh, grocery stores and how folks buy food on Native communities? You know, I think it's however you want to look at it in a perspective. So instead of setting up a grocery store, the Osage Nation has the mobile market that's going into these communities with fresh produce, homemade canned goods, along with the fresh meat. Because our communities are so spread out, that one centrally centrally located store um, was not going to be adequate for our people. So we chose this other route of basically making it a mobile grocery store to provide access um, to our people at a uh, more reasonable location because a lot of our elders don't have the ability to drive and we are also located in that low income area so driving you know 45 to 60 miles one direction to hit that grocery store which would probably if we had one be located in our uh, seat of the Osage Nation Reservation in Pawhuska it's just not reasonable. And so we are going to them instead of having that one location. Right. And when we talk about meat processing facilities and operations, it kind of takes the, the humanity out of it uh, a whole bunch. Um, How are, you know, these smaller meat processing operations maybe better for the animals that, uh, that go there? I would say that they are much better for the animals because the smaller processing facilities are not harvesting, um, you know, 20 to 100 animals or even more a day. And so those animals are getting um, knocked or, or or killed at a very faster rate. So they're not becoming very anxious in the back in the holding pens, which then, you know, provides a less um, or a more tender meat um, at the very end of the process because they're not anxious and they're not, their muscles aren't tense when those animals are not. Mm-hmm. Um, can you kind of give us a, a audio tour of the meat processing facility over at Osage Nation? How, how big is it? Um, and and how, how long does it take for maybe a, a cow or a buffalo to go through? Yeah, so our meat processing facility is located in Hominy, Oklahoma. It is a 19,000-square-foot facility that stayed in USDA inspected. So this facility, uh, the animals would start at the back and then, and then move their way to the front. So the back is the holding facilities, and the very front of our building is our retail counter. Um, so the animals, after they are knocked and, and gutted and skinned, they are hanging for 14 to 21 days to pass that uh, USDA certification. And then those animals then move uh, into being processed and cut and packaged. And so from start to finish to be able to get to our retail counter is approximately 25 days. And and we do offer both fresh and frozen products that come out of the back of our facility into our retail store. Okay. 
All right. And um, you are at the Intertribal Agriculture Council Conference in Las Vegas. Uh, can you tell me about uh, just the the environment over there, the vibe over there? How are people feeling about this new federal program, uh, this grant program? You know, it it's just such a unique experience um, bringing Native agriculturalists together in one location just is empowering and everyone is very excited to be able to hopefully receive some type of USDA funding to be able to increase their agricultural activities and you know here at the Intertribal Ag Council Conference a lot of networking occurs and so the Osage Nation is very open to individuals or travel governments that are wanting to build facilities to come tour our facility or even get on a Zoom call and talk through the logistics of what they need to expect on pros and cons of a meat processing facility because we do understand that there are a lot of people that are looking to get into that industry and and we are one of the leading tribes in that industry right now. Okay. Uh, speaking of, um, you know, federal funding, how have you seen tribes, um, in, including some advocates and policy makers and changers, how have you seen them work together with the federal government to make funding more accessible to tribes that are looking for this kind of funding for their meatpacking facilities? We love having connections like groups as the Indigenous Food and Agricultural Initiative through the University of Arkansas, along with the Native American Agricultural Fund, uh, the Intertribal Agricultural Council, the Intertribal Buffalo Council, all of these organizations um, bring the individual Native producers' opinion out to the government level, which is such a unique and amazing experience within itself because those individuals within each organization are specialized in Native American agriculture and understanding the policy to be able to break it down in layman terms so that your Native ag producer understands what's going on and they're able to turn around and take that into, uh, opinion of the Native agricultural producer to the higher levels to be able to get things moved through and understand what the need is at that point in time. All right. All right, so that is just about all the time we have for our show today. I'd like to say thank you to our guests who joined us today, uh, Harley Moore-Wilson, Dr. Lauren Devine, and Cynthia Burns. We also heard from Heather Don Thompson. Join us tomorrow for a discussion with our December native in the spotlight, Lori Wiaki. I'm Andy Murphy. Native Forward Scholars Fund scholarships are open now. Native Forward supports Native students' higher education journeys, offering over 40 scholarship opportunities, programs, and resources designed for Native students. Info and applications at nativeforward.org who support this show. Does your club, institution, or other group need custom-branded apparel? A wide variety of t-shirts, hoodies, and much more, all custom-printed or embroidered, are available from nativescreenprinting.com, a division of Skyscreen Printing who support this program. coverage, <laughs> 
Katilkain, Kachu one eight hundred three one eight two five nine six Kahiik, Medicare, Ka Medicaid, Jidahu Katank Aya. Native America Calling is produced in the Annenberg National Native Voice Studios in Albuquerque, New Mexico by Kwanak Broadcast Corporation, a native nonprofit media organization. Funding is provided by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting with support from the Public Radio Satellite Service. Music is by Brent Michael Davis. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network.